Some of the mega-theological questions we ask are connected to our beliefs in the omni-characteristics of God. We just saw this in our last session as we wondered if we can truly have free will if God has omniscience. In this session, we're going to ask a different question. If God is omnipotent, that is, he has all the power, then why do bad things happen? This question gets rephrased in all different kinds of ways. Why do bad people get their way? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? Uh, can God prevent bad things from happening? Or does he want bad things to happen and so he lets them happen? And if he doesn't want bad things to happen, then why doesn't he stop bad things from happening? Is something preventing him from stopping bad things? Is he really omnipotent? These questions seem like a lot to handle, especially when tough times are upon us. It's, it's one thing to address these questions from afar, but it's another to deal with them in the midst of struggle. But the answer to this question is nowhere near as complicated as we might think. In fact, uh, the two components we need to answer it directly are found in our last two sessions. So component number one, humans are made in God's image and are therefore entrusted with power and authority to rule over the earth. Component number two, humans have been granted free will to use the power and authority God has given them in whatever way they choose. All right, now combine these two components together and you, you get the answer as to why bad things happen. God grants all human beings power and authority and does not set restrictions on how we use it. We can exert our rule over creation in good ways by tending the ground, by designing beautiful gardens, by taking care of the animals and creating renewable energies and resources. All of this is within our God-given power entrusted to us, but we can also do the opposite. We can use this same power to burn down rainforests, to rip apart habitats, to treat animals as nothing more than food, to drive species into extinction and suck the earth dry of its elements. We are powerful beings. We have a choice as to if we'll use the power God has entrusted to us for good or for bad. We can abuse the earth with our power and we can, be, we can abuse other humans with our power. Furthermore, God anoints certain humans with greater authority, like some of the kings and leaders in the Bible, and we can only hope that they'll use their greater power for good. Though, the Bible shows us time and time again that that's just not the case. Humanity is a race entrusted with power, and we are given the free will to abuse that power if we choose. And when we do, bad things happen. So again, we have to ask the question, if God has omnipotence, why doesn't he just stop all bad things from happening? Well, outside of the answer found in image and free will, I refer you to the title of this series we've been going through, God's Grand Framework. In answering the major questions of our faith, we are trying to establish God's framework for how existence works. 
And as we look at scripture, reason, and experience, it becomes clear that God's framework is to grant power and not necessarily take it away simply because it's used incorrectly. After all, the only human with zero power and authority is a dead one. Since all humans have some power just by being a human and being in God's image. And it's clear that God doesn't just kill people off for doing bad things. Our loving God is gracious enough to wait for even the worst of the worst to be redeemed and use their power for good. Could he take their life to stop them? Yes, and the scriptures actually show that he has done that before. But our experience shows us that this is typically not the way in which he works. Rather, he usually entrusts us with power and then lets us in our free will decide how we will use it. We don't necessarily need to know why this is, but we do have to understand that this is his general framework. When we grasp this, the question of why do bad things happen, ends up not reflecting on God, but on humanity. And it doesn't just reflect solely on humanity. Not just on human imagers, but on heavenly imagers as well. You'll recall from our first chapter that humans are not the only imagers in existence, for heavenly beings were also created in God's image. This means that they too have been granted their own kind of power and authority and given their own free will as to how to use it. While we typically think of heavenly beings as being obedient servants of God, that's just not the picture the Bible paints. The book of Job tells us that even in his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. It's Job 4.18. This book also says uh, that God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. It's Job 15.15. 15. Revelation even tells us that a third of the angels turned against God. And who knows if more had turned against him before that moment in Revelation, or if any have turned against him since the book of Revelation was written. And it's not just mere angels, these messenger beings that have turned against God, but other spiritual beings higher up the ladder of authority have turned against God as well. For just as God has granted human princes and principalities greater authority, so he has granted spiritual princes and principalities greater authority. Bible writers knew these upper-level spiritual beings by all different kinds of titles. Princes, principalities and powers, the divine council, cosmic powers, demons, sons of God, and yes, even the term gods. Most people assume that since the false gods of the Bible are false, they are therefore not real. But that's not the picture the Bible gives us. While there is only one true God of gods and Lord of lords who created all things, Deuteronomy 32.8 actually tells us that God empowered some of the spiritual beings he created to rule over different nations. Daniel gives us a closer glimpse at these territorial authorities when he mentions the Prince of Greece and the Prince of Persia, uh, which were fighting against God. Now, don't get confused here. The Bible completely teaches that there is only one God. 
Yahweh, who has created everything that exists, both in the physical realm and the spiritual realm. He created human beings and spiritual beings and everything else. Nothing can exist without him. The little g false gods are nothing like the one and only true God. Not even close. But they also aren't nothing. Now you'd think that these gods would use their power and authority right because they're superior beings. Yet it seems that just as power can be a downfall for humanity, so it can also be a downfall for heavenly beings. Psalm 82 informs us that the whole of the divine council, the little g gods, are all fallen. It says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. We could further elaborate the fallenness of spiritual beings by looking into Satan's story. The Bible informs us that he used to be a perfect and beautiful cherubim, that is, a spiritual guardian of sorts that protected God's sacred space. For an example of this role, think of the cherubim with the flaming sword that prevents Adam and Eve from getting back into the sacred space of Eden after they eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. While such guardians were commonly depicted with the body of a lion, the wings of a bird, and the face of a human, the Bible also talks about serpentine spiritual creatures known as seraphim. When we blend all of these elements together, we catch a possible glimpse of what's going on in the story of the Garden of Eden. Satan was no common snake, but a spiritual being in a known serpentine form that had perhaps been appointed to protect the sacred grounds where the tree of knowledge of good and evil was. But what is the cherubim doing? Clearly not his job. If he were, he'd be trying to convince Adam and Eve to run far away from the tree. Instead, in his own rebellion, he attempts to lead humanity into rebellion as well. He tries to get humanity to achieve wisdom his way instead of God's way. And when he is successful in doing so, the whole world is thrown into utter chaos. Humanity chooses to exalt the corrupt serpentine cherubim, and in doing so, the original framework of an earth where good things happen is morphed into a framework where bad things happen. As punishment for trying to usurp God and his reign over the divine council, the cherubim that used to live in the heavens is sentenced to the earth, where he is now, as Paul will call him, the God of this world. He is exalted on the earth, but de-exalted from the heavens. In fact, he's so de-exalted from the heavens that he's sentenced to Sheol, the spiritual underworld beneath the earth where all the dead in the Bible go. He's kicked out of the highest place 
to the lowest place. But despite his great fall, he is not de-empowered along the way. In fact, our sin seems to have empowered him to hold the power of death. That is, until Jesus took the power of death from him. With all of this in mind, we come to realize that God didn't make Satan so he could have some kind of powerful cosmic enemy to fight against, or, or so humanity would have the option to follow someone other than God if they wanted. No, Satan, the gods, the angels, and all the spiritual beings were not designed to be corrupt, but became corrupt. They too are imagers with power, and they too have the free will to exert their power sinfully. The punishments for their sin vary. Some spiritual beings have been locked up in chains. Some of them have been kicked out of heaven. But because spiritual beings are by nature immortal beings, their power and authority cannot be discontinued by death like humans. Or can it? Before we dive deeper into that question, let's first address an additional rebellion in the Bible that is both human and heavenly, and is another part of the reason that bad things happen. In Genesis 6, 1 through 4, we're told that some of the sons of God, that is, some of the heavenly imagers, decided to rebel against God in a rather surprising way. They used their free will to violate the order of God's grand framework and procreated with human women to create a new kind of race, a quasi-divine species of giants called the Nephilim. They were the descendants of human imagers and heavenly imagers, and they added a whole new level of free will rebellion into the earth. Though these giants are mentioned right before the time of Noah's flood, the Bible tells us that they still existed after the flood too. Part of the reason we miss this fact is because as their race grew, they took on new names. The Bible eventually identifies the giants not only as the Nephilim, but also as the sons of Anak slash the Anakim, uh, the Amim, the Rephaim, and the Zamzumim. We also see the Amorites described by the prophet Amos as having the height of cedars, showing us that some, though not all, of the Amorites were also known as giants. Likewise, it seems that a few giants were dispersed throughout the human clans of the Amalekites, Hittites, Jebusites, Canaanites, and Philistines. And in the time of the Old Testament, you know, you just get this feeling that the giants are everywhere. It's strange that we should miss all this because these giants are standing right in Israel's way for they inhabit the holy land that God promised his people they would move into. And perhaps with this in mind, we might speculate that God specifically sent Israel to this land so that they would finish the job of what the flood was partially meant to do, get rid of the giants. In fact, a very close reading of the Bible seems to relay that if there were no giants in specific parts of the promised land, then the inhabitants could be simply driven out and not necessarily killed in war. Yes, believe it or not, it seems possible that the holy wars of the Old Testament were set in place to eradicate the rebellious giants. Now, there are a few giants mentioned by name throughout the Bible, including Arba, Sheshai, Ahimen, and Talmai, King Og, Ishbi Banab, Saf slash Sipai, Lami, and the most well known of giants, Goliath. 
For many, Goliath is an odd story about an unusually tall man who came out of nowhere, but the Bible has been setting us up to see him in the light of the Nephilim. He is a, a descendant of the bloodline of angels and humans, present on the earth well after the flood. As evidenced by these stories, it should become clear to us that the giants had a very wide impact on our world. Despite the brief explanation of the Nephilim's creation in Genesis 6, they did not end up being a short blip on the timeline. They lived well past Genesis 6 and rebelled against God and his people from their birth until they were eradicated. But as it ends up, their eradication was not the end of their oppression. For the Rephaim of the Bible are referred to not only as giants, as we just saw, but also as the shades that live in Sheol. The Jewish literature written closer to Jesus' time had a pretty focused understanding of what this meant. Some of the demons in existence are the disembodied souls of the giants. The shades of the Rephaim still torment us today. From this perspective, the rebellion of the giants is not a thing of the past. The rebellion is still found when they fight against us in demonic form, just as they fought against Jesus in his time. So, why do bad things happen? The answer is found in the fact that the world has been corrupted in every possible way. In the physical realm, humanity has taken their God-given authority and used it to rebel against him. In the spiritual realm, heavenly beings have taken their God-given authority and used it to rebel against him. And then between all of that, both humanity and heavenly beings have partnered together to create new levels of rebellion that should have never existed in the framework God expected his imagers to follow. The world is corrupt to the point that even nature itself isn't right. Everything is broken. And with all of this in mind, perhaps a more appropriate question people should ask is why do good things happen? And of course, the answer to that is that sometimes the imagers of God get it right instead of wrong. Sometimes we choose to follow Jesus, the one true image of God, and prophetically remind the world of what it would actually be like if God had his way. Yes, even in the midst of all this brokenness and corruption, we can show the world that rebellion and bad things are not the end all of existence. For God is still in charge and will ultimately have his way. For while God has chosen not to use his omnipotence every time a bad thing happens in these days, the day is coming where God has decided he will exercise his omnipotence in full force. At the end of this phase of existence will come what the prophets called the day of the Lord. This is the day that God will use his omnipotence to snuff out evil once and for all. He has heard our questions about how long bad things must continue to happen before he does something, and he has responded that the day will eventually come. On that day, all imagers that have ever existed throughout history will be examined and judged to see if they are granted the right to live on in a remade earth where only good happens and bad things are a distant memory. Those who are welcome to enter this new world will be those who have given their lives to Jesus. Why? Because sin will not be tolerated there, for sin is why bad things happen. 
And in order for sin to not make its way into that new world, we need to, one, be forgiven of our previous sins, which Jesus will do if we follow him. And two, receive the Holy Spirit that empowers us to live good lives free of sin. Right now, we can experience that in some capacity, but when the day of the Lord comes, we'll be given a new kind of resurrected body that will conform us to the image of Jesus and free us of sin in its entirety. Don't be confused. We won't live perfect lives because God took away our free will, but just the opposite. We will live perfect lives because in this phase of human history, we used our free will to ask God to make us perfect. On the day of the Lord, he will answer this desire in our hearts and get rid of the sin in us once and for all. He will slay the beast that constantly tries to seduce us and we will continue on with a resurrected free will that can no longer fall prey to sin. Bad things will not always happen and God in his omnipotence guarantees it. All that is wrong with the earth will be done away with and only his son and all who look like his son will remain. This is the future of the Christian. This, of course, leaves us asking other questions like, uh, what about people who have never heard the gospel? What happens to them on the day of the Lord? Well, we could answer this question and many others like it with pages worth of retorts, passages, and more questions. I instead want to give a moral answer for now in hopes that it might satisfy us. In asking this question, our fear is really about God's character, is it not? Our concern is that God might be immoral in his judgments, and so we want a laid out system that we can use to assess his judgments and his character and predetermine the results of, of who gets in in these gray areas. It helps me to rest in the fact that God cannot sin or cast bad or inappropriate or immoral judgment on anyone. In his omniscience, he judges us with every last single thing we've ever done or didn't do in mind. Uh, another thought I try to keep in the forefront of my mind is that Jesus is our ultimate judge. We so often like to express our faith with phrases that keep us in control, like, I chose Jesus and so he'll let me into heaven. But in reality, it's backwards. It's more like Jesus chose me and has deemed me worthy to enter heaven. That being said, only God gets to decide who gets in and who doesn't, and his character is not flawed. So if he were ever to deem someone worthy to get in because they were in a strange situation of never having heard the gospel before or something else like that, then that would match the paradigm of Jesus using his perfect judgment to accept them into his kingdom if they're willing to give their lives to him. He will always be the answer and the perfect moral and righteous judge so we can trust him to handle the gray areas correctly. While these answers may not quench our desire for the specifics, I hope they're good enough to at least give us some peace on who gets in and who doesn't when gray areas come up. We must trust in our loving and gracious judge to exert his omniscience and omnipotence in the proper way. And in this phase of human existence, we must continue on mission with the truth. Jesus is the only way to get into heaven. And so we must invite the world to follow him as he draws them to him. The day will come where fallen spiritual beings will no longer stay immortal but die like men and be thrown into a fire prepared for Satan and his angels. 
The day will come where all of the afterlife will be emptied out before God's throne, and each person that has ever lived will be judged by Jesus, some going on to eternal life and some meeting the finality of eternal death. The day will come where all that is bad will be done away with, and from that point on, we will never ask again, why do bad things happen? For one day, the world will be set right and the community that will continue on into that world will be set right as well. And that will be a glorious day.